Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. My practice specializes in in providing fact-based strategic and risk management advice to clients that are buying, selling, or growing the value of companies and their intellectual property. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So with this podcast, we're taking a little bit of a different take on Decision Vision. The overwhelming majority of the Decision Vision podcast topics are framed as a binary, should I do X or should I not do X? Or should I do X versus should I do Y? And um, some time ago in an idle moment, it occurred to me that that's not the only kind of decision that you, the audience, are faced with. You may make a decision to proceed, but then there's another kind of decision where you then must select, right? You make a decision that, yes, I'm going to eat out, you arrive at the restaurant, and then you are generally presented with a menu, although now I guess a lot of them give you a QR code and you have to squint on your phone, which I hate, and I hope that goes away. Um, uh, but I'm going to kind of test out a series of these topics because I, I, I do think there's some value to them for that, what I call sort of a second order decision. Um, uh, you know, we've decided to do X, how, how do we proceed? Because that how do we proceed um, typically involves, again, uh, a, a choice among various alternatives of how to proceed. And so today's podcast topic is actually sort of going back to the future, if you will, and you'll understand why in a second as I introduce our guests. Um, But today's topic is, um, how do I select an attorney? And uh, most of us at some point in our lives are going to have interactions with and rely upon the advice provided by a legal counsel. And that advice may be in a transaction, may be in contract law, employment law, intellectual property law, you name it, there's a law out there and there's an attorney out there who wants to be your advisor and provide that and provide that advice. And it occurs to me that it's not all that easy to select an attorney, not, not for lack of them. There's certainly an ample supply of attorneys in the United States who are, again, happy to, um, to become your advisor uh, and, and counselor. But you can be overwhelmed with those choices. Right. And, and unless you kind of have a legal background or you hang out in the legal community, how do you make an informed decision as to the right person or the right firm or some combination of the two 
to to represent you. And you know, because attorneys provide such critical advice, um, it's it's important that you that that's a decision that you make correctly because bad advice or a bad relationship with an attorney that causes you maybe to not listen to their advice, not act on their advice, can undermine what might have been a good decision to retain legal counsel in the first place. So we're having sort of a panel discussion today, or a tag team, if you will. And uh, we have two guests today, both of whom are alumni of the Decision Vision podcast, um, in no particular order other than um, looking at them on the screen. First is Juliana Neal Bauer, who is Senior Associate at Drew Eckel Farnham, which is a law firm here in Atlanta. They're a full-service law firm that offers deep litigation expertise, strategic corporate and transac- transactional counsel, practical legal advice to companies, individuals, and families. Juliana focuses her practice on virtual general counsel for for-profit, nonprofit, charitable, trade organizations, and high-net-worth individuals and families, which hail from consumer technology, commercial technology, healthcare, industrial supply chain, boy, that's a mess, finance, government contracting, and political action industries. Also joining me today, talking about Back to the Future, is the uh, the host slash victim from the inaugural podcast, right? Think back to like Star Trek when they had uh, Christopher Pike as the captain. Um, uh, Jackie Hutter was the first guest ever on the podcast to talk about, should I, should I uh, get a patent? And um, uh, incredibly enough, she's agreed to come back on. And uh, Jackie has been helping innovators capture the value of their ventures at the Hutter Group since 2008. During this time, and probably not coincidentally, Jackie has been named by her peers as a, as a top global IP strategist for I don't know how many years now. It's been, I don't know, it's got to be at least a decade. Every time I open up LinkedIn, she's named like another top IP something or other. For several years, Jackie has took a break from the law as CEO of a startup technology company where she experienced entrepreneurship from the inside, which gives her a unique perspective among patent experts. Prior to striking out on her own, Jackie was a senior intellectual property lawyer at Georgia Pacific and a shareholder at an Atlanta intellectual property law firm. She started her non-legal career as a research scientist in the innovation group of a hair and skin product company. She lives in the Decatur area in a groovy mid-century house with her husband, far too many pets, and we may hear one of the dogs barking in the background today for no extra charge, and she has two daughters in college. Juliana and Jackie, welcome to the program. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. So glad to be here. So here's a question I want to jump in, and we could almost talk an hour on this one topic, but we'll just sort of see how this goes. My question is, how do people end up with bad lawyers, or at least lawyers that are a bad fit for them, right? There's, as I said, there's no shortage of lawyers out there. There's no shortage of information you can find out about them, whether they, they want it to be found out or not. But nevertheless, we all encounter scenarios in which we have clients, contacts, friends that are, are frankly unhappy with their legal counsel. And sometimes they feel trapped in that relationship. How, in, in your mind, seeing it from the semi inside, how does that happen? Well, I um, thought about this on the way to drop my daughter's really awful car at the car mechanic this morning. And the reason why people end up with bad, re- bad lawyers is the same reason why so many people end up with bad mechanics. 
They just don't know what they're looking for. Um, and usually, you know, the good news is it doesn't really matter because it's a pretty simple thing. It doesn't take a whole lot of skill. It takes some skill, it takes some expertise, but it doesn't take a whole lot of expertise. Um, but in the case of my uh, my auto mechanic, who I adore, by the way, um, I learned about him from a very dear friend who was himself a car mechanic. And he doesn't fix his own cars anymore. And he happened upon this, this gentleman's business. But importantly, my good friend who, who um, introduced me to this car mechanic uh, collects uh, vintage cars. He has a Jensen. And he doesn't take his Jensen to our car mechanic because he knows that our car mechanic is not qualified to fix a Jensen. And my point there is that sometimes you need a skill set that is really, really hard to find. And you're not, you know, not only do you not know what the general skill set is for something, but again, it won't matter. But if you need something very, very specialized, and you don't know, and you're likely not going to know, you're not going to know whether the guy on the other side of the of the counter knows how to fix that or not, because it's probably pretty likely that they're going to say, oh, yeah, I can fix this. And when you end up with a uh, uh, with a Jensen, if you will, that, uh, yeah, that's currently worth $100,000, and then they screw up the wiring on that, and it's not worth $100,000 anymore, you're going to be pretty upset, but the damage done been did, right? Right. You know, I think it's just the, the the nature of the specialty, right? You could talk about that with any number of other specialties, doctors, right? You um, uh, sometimes you just have a broken bone; it's pretty easy, but sometimes it's something more serious. And you hope and ex- you expect, you should expect that the the guy that the doctor he uh, he or she is going to recognize that they are really qualified to do what needs to be done, but a lot of times they don't. So in your case, you, you know, you, you benefited in your mechanic story, you benefited from the adage that if you want to catch a jewel thief, hire a jewel thief, <laughs> right? I like that one, yes. And, I'm, and actually, I'm going to come back to that because, because I do think there are resources that at least purport to sort of be that hire a jewel thief to catch a jewel thief. We'll get there. Julian, anything that you want to add to that discussion? Okay. Of course, I have something I want to add to that. I'm a lawyer. I love to talk, but also because, quite frankly, the reason why I am sitting in this seat and in this role in life, the reason why I went back to law school was because I personally felt this pain of how do you find the right lawyer and then having a lawyer that you're not really happy with. And after having that experience in my own businesses, um, I, you know, I regretfully shared it with some other of technology company owners and discovered, oh, I shouldn't be embarrassed about this. We're all suffering this fate or a large number of us are. And I thought at the time, well, this is just, you know, a market inefficiency or a, uh, uh, a gap that needs to be filled. And so perhaps foolishly, I left the tech industry and went back to law school and put up a shingle and started serving my uh, management consulting clients with legal services as an attorney um, in my own firm. And so, um, and I'm still doing it. So I guess it's a good sign. Uh, and I was trying to solve some of that problem, right? By, to Jackie's point, being a industry specialist and who could also provide legal specialty for that industry so that I had deep understanding of your transactions, of your business models, but also of the law. 
that you needed to then overlay on top of that. But, um, but in addition to all that, I think it comes down to now that I've been in the seat for a while and I see it from the other side, right? I think that the, the client has just given very limited education about the different types of lawyers that are out there, what they can actually do for you. Um, and so the expectations that they bring versus the expectations, quite frankly, the lawyer has when you are starting an engagement are very rarely, the time is rarely spent to truly vet that those are aligned because yeah, you need a specialist, but sometimes I find in my practice, half of my clients, I would guess, come to me because of my IP slash specifically technology industry or product driven experience. And so they initially come to me with an IP related question, a licensing question, a commercialization question, and that's all they really want. Um, But then very quickly, we discover that all of the other aspects of their business that an outside general counsel can provide maybe are even more of what I end up doing for them over time than what they initially came for me as a specialist in for. And so um, I think we have to put it on the lawyers that we don't do a great job of making sure that our clients understand what we really can do. And, um, and that's also outcomes to Jackie's point, you know, like I I don't, I think people expect that by hiring a lawyer and making that investment, there's almost um, there should be almost like a guarantee and an outcome that's better than what they could have had on their own. And in many cases that is the case, but, you know, what is that spectrum of possibility? And then also what is the just down to communication and working styles like every other human being, you know, you gotta, your, your, your lawyer is a part of your team. It's like hiring a co-founder. It's like, and if you don't think of it that way, if you think of your lawyer as just sort of another vendor that you're plugging in and out, you're probably not getting the most value out of them, but you could be, it's an inefficient relationship, but also you're much more likely to have um, that feeling that, of dissatisfaction because you're not giving them as much information. They're not giving you as much. And um, if your communication styles aren't aligned, if what you want delivered to you is not expressed clearly, and then if they don't deliver, express to you how they're going to deliver the work so that it's most useful to you, I think you're going to be pretty unhappy or at least, you know, not thrilled. And I just have a quick follow-up to what Juliana said. Um, the question is, is your lawyer solving a problem or is this lawyer solving your problems? And a lot of lawyers like to solve problems and um, get their joy, get their pay for solving problems. But they may have very little to do with what your real problems are as a business. That's an excellent point. I think Jackie, by the way, I mean, giving her a shout out. I love sharing this, this time with her because I refer a lot of clients to her because I know that she's not just going to solve a patent problem, but the client specific one. And that is a huge distinction. And so I'm a better lawyer to my client. They're happier with me when I refer them to someone like Jackie. And I had the gumption to do that as well. So right back at you, right back at you. So Juliana, you mentioned something in passing. I actually, I actually think, I think warrants a little bit of expansion. So if you don't mind, I'd like to pause a beat on that and I'd love Jackie to comment as well. Um, you, you, you talked about a scenario under which maybe an attorney is brought into the team for an initial task, right? And then that task 
develops into a relationship and therefore the spectrum of problems that the attorney is going to address will become broader and the relationship will become deeper, right? And it strikes me that maybe that is perhaps an example of best practices of how to hire an attorney to try to figure out, try to figure out a model of instead, instead of, instead of just sort of like a mail order bride kind of thing where you're getting married sight unseen, right? Can you have a date or two to see if you actually like each other before you, before you really kind of dive in and, and commit to a massive relationship? Does that make any sense? It does. And that is almost always the way it starts. You know, I, I can't maybe two clients, three who come to me and said, you're going to be our outside general counsel immediately and you're going to handle everything. Um, it's usually a discrete project. Now, the, the, the reason why I think that is, is partly fear, fee fear. Um, and that's a whole nother reason, which is the 800 pound gorilla in the room for why people are unhappy with their lawyers. And we definitely need to talk about that some more. Um, but yeah, and I think in those cases where it was the case, it was because also critically, I was referred or in, in effect, they, they knew that my work quality and my work product was going to be good. And they had their expectations set as far as how that would be delivered from another attorney or another professional who could speak to that. Or they actually observed my work product because they saw me in action in a different context, either through mentoring at a university or teaching at a university, um, collaborating with someone else's project where I wasn't their counsel, and then they wanted me as their counsel. And so, um, again, you know, when we live in this world where it's very difficult to evaluate lawyers or even just assemble the collection of those who are available in a specialty so that you can begin to sort them, search them properly... Um, I think it's really important that uh, you you look for folks who you can observe their skill, their expect expectation of how they want to work, how you want to work with them, and their working style. You know how they deliver work and how they communicate ahead of time, if possible. And I know most of the time you have an urgent buyer, and now we've actually got to hire a lawyer, and so there's a rush, and you don't have that. And so in that case, even more, I would say um, if it's an attorney who's referred by another attorney. That's a very good sign, in my opinion. And what I like to say is it's just as important for me to love my clients. And um, I've spent a lot of time and I've actually worked very hard at making sure that the folks who are going to work with me are going, it's going to be a good fit because if it's not a good fit, they're not going to be happy and I'm not going to be happy. So I've created a, I've created an intake, intake system where I get to know people. I make sure that they're they're the right people for my practice because I have a very bespoke, different type of practice. But the reason I learned that um, is is through you know, real, um, not very comfortable experiences. I did. I woke up as an equity partner in a in a, in a law firm where I was being paid hundreds you know, hundreds of dollars an hour, and more money than I've ever made. You know, in, in more than fifteen years ago when I left that position, and. I woke up one day and I said, I have nothing in common with my clients. We don't really click. And yet they were paying me ridiculous amounts of money and neither of us liked each other. And that's, that's no shade on them. That's no shade on me, but it was, it was not a good fit, you know, from, from this, from that standpoint. And yet I didn't, because I had uh, was working at a law firm with massive overhead, 
you know, associates reporting to me, um, all the all the stuff that goes along with that. I didn't have the my business model did not allow me to say, you know what, you need to go somewhere else because this is not a good fit. And, you know, that creates unhappy clients, unhappy lawyers, and it becomes a a cycle that's really, really difficult to, to extricate yourself from. So I want to I, I want to stick on that point, too, because I, I think that's really important. Um, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I can say as a matter of my practice, you know, I, I do make clients in a way sell themselves to me. I, I make them jump through hoops to make sure that I think it's a good fit. It's sort of a life's too short thing. And you know, I also don't want to have a bad outcome because it was just a bad fit. I don't want that on my my record, basically, right? And and I suspect that both of you do the same thing in some fashion or another. And and to somebody listening now, because going back to the topic, how do you choose a lawyer? Is it a red flag if if somebody if if I'm a client and I call an attorney up and I say, hey, I need this done, they say, okay, I'll send you an engage letter, right? No, no conversation, no hoops to jump through, no pre-qualification, not even any hint of a client acceptance process if you're a you know, larger firm, is that in itself a red flag? Like, geez, really? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Like, I'm going to go back and say it again because I think it's worth repeating. You know, it's like hiring a co-founder. It's like hiring another operator, C-suite operator of your company. And so to Jackie's point, yeah, you got to get along and in her case, love her clients, which is why I love uh, referring wine to her. Um, but also, you know, you're going to be in the trenches. By the way, my clients and I joke that when they hire me, they expect me not only to live a long time, but to outlive them because they don't want to have to go find another lawyer if I die before them. So I've got to be a lawyer forever and I've got to do it longer than they're going to be alive. Um, and so, you know, as a result, like this is a long-term relationship. I have many clients now that have has exits from companies. Some some had uh, companies that didn't work out. And I will stick with those founders in different contexts for years and years and years. And so is that worth an extra hour, an extra 30 minutes of discussion up front? I think so. I don't know about you. I wouldn't want to get married to somebody that I hadn't, going back to your analogy, uh, Mike, that I hadn't had at least a 30-minute worthy conversation When you don't do that, both sides are treating this like a purely transactional relationship. And it's just, that's, that is the fiction. This is a, this is a deep relationship over time. So so to Juliana's point, I I tell clients and any potential new client that comes, that that contacts me, I make sure that in our initial, our initial call, I say, you know what, you're not going to hear this from any other lawyer I know, maybe Juliana, because if I haven't done an intake with her, but I say, I will always tell you the truth, even though you don't want to hear the truth. And I will always treat your money like it's my money. Okay. And if that's not, if that's not something you want, if you want somebody to, to say yes, yes to you all the time, somebody who makes you comfortable, which is what effectively what I was required to do when I was a, when I was a, a equity partner in a, in a law firm, I couldn't make my clients uncomfortable because, oh my gosh, if they're uncomfortable, if I cause them any kind of like, no, well, let's, I, I think maybe we should try something different. They might go down the street to another expensive law firm because in in, it because in actuality, there was really no competitive differentiation between what I was doing and any number of expensive law firms that also existed in the the city. If not, you know, I have a federal practice. I'm a patent lawyer, but throughout the country. So let me change gears here. Um, Yeah, if if 
if you if you look at most law firm websites and the bio and the bios, this is changing a little bit, I think, to be fair, but it hasn't changed enough in my view. Um, an attorney's academic credentials are very much front and center. And um, I'd like to get both of your both of your viewpoints. How how important should the brand name of the school? We don't know if you, you never know if that person graduated top or bottom of their class. But how much should the name of the school matter in terms of selecting who an attorney is going to be? You're asking somebody who went to a fourth tier law school that uh, in another city that that had the same name of a law school here in Atlanta that wasn't accredited. My resume went into the circular file of every (laughs) every law firm that I applied to. And I was at the top of my class. I had won all kinds of awards or whatever. So in bottom line, I, I went to a really good school for where I, where I lived in Chicago, right? Everybody knew my law, but nobody knew it outside. Um, and uh, I was fortunate enough to get uh, brought into a very prestigious law firm, working with a very, very prestigious uh, lawyer, litigator at the time. And, um, you know, everything, you know, everything's history in that regard. But, but I can say that some of the least talented lawyers I have ever worked with and worked directly with went to some of the best law schools, unquestionably. So, you know, but how do you know that from the outside? It's at the end of the day, where you went to where you went to school often is an infinity game, right? At least there's there's some perspectives There's some there's some uh, assumption that somebody else has done the filtering. And you have to worry about fewer things, but that that requires you to that requires you to 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 have absolute confidence that the filtering was done correctly. And that's you know, that's irrational if, if you ask me. Thank you for saying that, Jackie. A hundred percent. Well, you know, it's the, it's a filter, but is that filter relevant to why you're hiring the attorney? So I went to a, I mean, I'll say an upper mid-tier law school, University of Maryland School of Law, and I went to an Ivy League undergrad, and neither of those degrees are on are framed on my wall in my office because that's how much I think they matter to my practice of law, by the way. Um, but I do agree that they do create an efficiency and a, and a filter for those who need to quickly sort through a thousand lawyers and it matters too. And why would that matter? Um, if you're, if you are in the middle of a, a high stakes, a federal appeal and the people who are going to determine the outcome of your issue, your, tr- your problem are people who care about that. It could be a useful tool to consider putting in the quiver you know, or a useful arrow to put in the quiver to have an attorney who's got a storied degree or background. Um, if you need someone to write your IP commercialization agreement for a specific type of software, I think a much better filter is whether that person understands that software or software in general or commercialization of, of software in the world or commercialization at all, you know, or in the jurisdictions where you're, you're looking at, or if they've ever um, had to think about the commercialization of a patent in Jackie's case and how that actually plays into your business plan. And so I think it is perfectly relevant and reasonable if you're looking to, to use the appeal system, appellate system to change the law for your industry, to try to get somebody who's got the credentials that a federal judge would appreciate, who's going to help adjudicate and determine the outcome of your appeal. But in most other cases, I think industry experience, I think the ability to mesh with you and your perspective as far as how legal services are going to be prioritized and delivered, communicates well with you, has good rapport, 
and is um has the just the raw skill to do the work is much more important. And I would say in the standpoint, from the standpoint of the business, you know, an entrepreneur that needs, you know, uh, real world, real world guidance in a way that somebody who, who's a large corporation may not need that kind of guidance. You're much, much more likely to find somebody with real world experience that went to a lower tier, quote unquote, lower tier law school than went to one of the Ivies. Um, so, you know, that may have had a job before, may have gone to school at night because you're not going to get that kind of a, you know, somebody who went to GSU versus here in Atlanta, somebody who went to Georgia State at night versus somebody who went to Emory, and you want them to, to give you practical advice. And the reason why they went to GSU at Georgia State at night was because they were working in a laboratory during the day to, to feed their family. That's in the patent world. That's a big deal, right? Somebody who's actually got practical science experience. So their, their law degree isn't as quote unquote, you know, premier as going to Emory. But the reasons they went to the lower tier school were indicative of their expertise as you need in context. So Juliana alluded to an an image which I I wanted to touch upon. So um, it's great you're basically doing my job for me. Uh, And and that is starting off with a list of a thousand lawyers, right? And, And one way one might get a list of a thousand lawyers might be to look at the Martindale. Hubble website ratings, that sort of thing. And I assume that's still a thing. I haven't looked, I actually didn't look for this, uh, this, this, uh, this podcast, but I suspect it's still out there. So from people who are industry insiders, definitionally industry insiders, how useful are those? How many referrals have you gotten from those kind of sources, Jackie? I don't, you know, any, any, uh, it's, uh, it, you know, for, for a lot of them are, are business models of the folks that do the, the, the books, right? It used to, you know, every, every, I, used, I was a super lawyer one year. I had no clue why I was named a super lawyer, but I, they, they sent me a solicitation, send, you know, send us X number of dollars you know, of, you know, so you can have your, your pretty picture in, the, in, the, um, uh, in the, the magazine that comes out every year. You know, so I, I want to come back to that. <laughs> There's some criteria for, for, for reaching that point. Uh, but I, I actually don't know uh, what it is now on my you know, uh, top IP, global IP strategies or whatever. They do solicit an advertisement from me every year for, for uh, you know, several thousand dollars. I have never advertised and that has not affected my ability to be named every year. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it, it's kind of a black box as far as you know, as far as I understand. I would say a better, I have the same experience. I don't, I can't, I mean, maybe I get like a spam email here and I'm not sure if it's a spam email with a referral from some of these places, but I honestly, um, that is not a, any part of my marketing or my business development pipeline at all. And, um, and so if I was out in the world trying to find a lawyer, that's either the Jackie or the Juliana or someone similar who I felt like would be a good fit and I could bet they were quality. I mean, I think it's kind of logical to go to your industry events, not the, you could go to the legal committee or industry event related industry events, but those are kind of adjacent. Those people, those tend to be um, both people who care a lot about affecting legal protocol for your industry or are marketing themselves to other lawyers. But if you go to the actual industry events or blogs and see which lawyers are actually engaged with your industry and are present in it and interacting with it and accepted and embraced by it, 
I think you can get your 100 person list or even a five person list. And that five person list is going to probably be um, a lot more representative of who um, is doing the real work related to what you need done than the opposite. I mean, if you just go to a podcast uh, uh, digest and put in patent law, Georgia, Jackie Hutter's podcast is going to come up and you'll be able to listen to her work product in effect by listening to her talk about the specific issues that you care about. I think it's a much better way to create a list. And, and I, we get I, the neighborhood listserv like so many of us have these days and people you know, ask, um, I need an estate lawyer, who would you hire? Um, I, I'm pretty sure that when I, as, a, as somebody who the neighbors know as a senior lawyer says, yeah, I have used this person. And even though I'm not an estate lawyer, I like what they do. Okay, I know nothing about estates and trust law, but I know somebody who's handling my stuff, my things that are important to me, and I feel they're doing a good job, the likelihood that they're going to also do a good job for you is probably better. Not always the case, but but I at least know who I would and wouldn't recommend because when I recommend somebody, my reputation is on the line. I consider my reputation to be on the line. Uh, even though I may not, you know, I don't make any money from that, but it's still people rely on me for my expertise and it's meaningful to me. So I would ask people who are in the business who have have been have, have gone farther along than you and maybe had an exit or maybe had a situation and they were happy with the result. And, you know, Mike, you always like to say, what's what result are you, you know, what business result are you seeking to 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 uh, obtain from whatever decision you're making? And so look around for other people who have have been through the entire process and see you know, what their result was and whether or not they you know, they were happy with that. Can we highlight that? What Jackie just said in particular, I the part about it's her reputation on the line. Mike, you said the same thing about taking in a client. And that you want it to be a good relationship because quite frankly, it's going to hurt your reputation if it goes sideways. This is so important. It's not just, uh, you know, reinforcing existing networks or, or cronyism to talk to other lawyers or your accountants or your wealth managers or your, um, your community entity or industry group leaders about the, you know, who they like because they have that real world experience and it's their reputation on the line. If they refer you to somebody who you're going to have a bad experience with. And oh, by the way, for Jackie and I, under certain jurisdiction uh, interpretations of our ethical rules under the bar, when we refer someone to another service provider, particularly another lawyer, um, in some cases, we can be liable for malpractice performed by that secondary attorney. Now, not in all cases, but in some cases you can. So there's that thin risk added on top of our reputational concern that all lawyers feel every time we make a referral to any other third-party service provider for our clients. And that is, I don't know about you, I take that very seriously because you can't control that other person's action. So you've got to know from experience they're going to do a good job. I'm always very careful also telling somebody how I know somebody, right? I have worked with this person or they, you know, I have actual knowledge of the work they've done, or I met them. They seem, they, they seem like they know how to do it, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to necessarily push into any, any real degree of knowledge about how, how, whether I know that they're trustworthy or not. And maybe that comes from the fact where, you know, where I grew up, right? Everybody, I'm from Miami back in the bad old days and everybody wanted to steal your money. 
Everybody wanted to be so so what what it was and you know or, or do something else that was not good because you know it's Miami. Watch Miami Vice. It was you know not that much. It was actually worse than Miami Vice. It wasn't as pretty, but in any event, um, that that you created your own networks, and those could be those weren't those weren't who you went to church with or who you went to school with or anything because uh, everybody would get, you couldn't trust anybody. In, in an environment like that, unless you really knew them. And so we created these very diverse networks of people. And the, 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 the focal point of creating those networks was because knew that they were trustworthy. And the reason they were part of your network is because they were, because they had been vetted by somebody else you trusted. Um, and I, I treat every referral I have today like that. And if, if I cannot attest to that, I, I'm absolutely honest and straightforward about that. So you touched on something that I, I need to make sure that I cover today. It would be negligence for my, me as a podcaster if I don't. And I'm probably going to put you ladies in the hot seat, but I know you can handle it. What is a Georgia super lawyer? What does that mean? If I'm a client and I see that somebody's a Georgia super lawyer or a super lawyer someplace in their bio, it's in their, they, they've shouted out on LinkedIn. I mean, is that... Does that say, man, I got to hire that person or Georgia soup? Does it have a cape? I mean, what's their. This is a much, much funnier question than it was a year ago, because there's now a guy who's got a billboard, a set of billboards. Have you seen these, Juliana? There's at least they're up on 85 on my way. You Next time you're going to go down the highway from your house, uh, look at this. I'm sorry, we're going sideways. Um, the uh, There's a, a bunch of billboards by a, uh, a lawyer who says he is the superlawyer.com, which is not a super lawyer TM, okay? Because super a super lawyer is a trademark of the company that whoever, so this guy, it's, it's like, what, how could he be the super lawyer, the super lawyer.com, but he's not a super lawyer TF. So that is a, a, that's indicative of the fact it's like, you don't know, I don't know, who knows, right? It's like, it sounds like a trademark, uh, trademark infringement suit to me. But bottom line is, like I alluded to before, I'm, I was a super lawyer. I have lots of friends who are super lawyers. Yeah, there's some there's some filtering mechanism um, that they 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 get you. Juliana, you have more information on that. Yeah. So our firm looked into it um, again, you know, because like there was younger. The, actually, our women's law group said we should make sure that the women and um, the folks who are represented through the diversity committee are also participating in whatever needs to be done to ensure that they can be nominated if they're own networks are not deep enough to nominate them. And so we looked into it. And for super lawyers, unlike some others, you do have to create an account to nominate somebody so that you can get into their marketing pipeline as a lawyer. And it is only other lawyers nominate lawyers. You have to have multiple other lawyers nominate you and they can't be from your firm. Um, Maybe one or two, but you can't and as a nominator, you can't just nominate everyone in your firm. You have for every person that you want to nominate in your firm, you have to nominate either one or two or two or three other lawyers. Um, and so, what is your motivation? I mean, there isn't a lot of disincentive again to not just nominate a bunch of other people, except for the fact that again, if you do so, you're kind of on the record in some level, and potentially there's some liability there. But since this is through a pipeline and it's not directly referring to a client, that's less of a risk. I would say. Um, there are some where it definitely feels much more pay to play. Super lawyers does in fact have a process where a certain number of other lawyers, more than two, 
have to nominate you and they can't be from your firm. So there's, you know, less of an incentive to just nominate your own team. And, uh, and so that is not a perfect filter. It's better. It is a filter. I think, I think it has some value because again, I have a, I just have a feeling from my experience that uh, our jobs are hard. It's very easy to make mistakes in a job that requires as a baseline, you'd be perfect. Because think about it. If we uh, aren't perfect, uh, that could lead to very bad outcomes for our client. And so um, almost every lawyer uh, could wince about thinking about moments in life and in practice where they haven't been perfect. And often that happens in the context of performing in front of another lawyer who observed you being imperfect. And, uh, and so to get another lawyer to want to say, yeah, this person's super. And oh, by the way, lawyers are very competitive. I think actually there, there, there's something, there's some value to that. Um, but, uh, but beyond that, I think that it is not to Mike's point, it is not a deep filter. It is a filter. So I don't have a marketing budget and I don't have any, you know, I haven't been nominated for, for being a super lawyer since I was in a law firm. And the referrals that I get typically are from my own clients who are happy with what I do. So presumably they think I'm a super lawyer, but it's it, it, it's it's not in the context of some some magazine that gets floated and it becomes marketing collateral that's that's distributed, you know, in, in, in all kinds of you know press releases and stuff every year. But more power to anybody whose name name is super lawyer. I like I have dear friends who who were super lawyers. No shade on them. But if I was choosing a lawyer, um, you know, it wouldn't be because they were a super lawyer. Well, that might be a great filter question when you're interviewing a lawyer, going to some of your what you know, how do we workshop your real question here, Mike? One of the questions that you could ask is, what percentage of your existing clients are referrals from your other clients? Good question. And just even if they're a young lawyer and they just haven't had enough time to have it be that high of a percentage, it would be very informative for me as a potential client to hear that answer and how they address it. Yeah, I think that I think that's a fair question that that probably has different degrees of relevance depending on what area of law, right? Um, it's probably okay if 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 you're seeking a personal injury attorney, it may be okay that you're, you, you saw them on the side of a bus, right? Cause it, it just the nature of that business or a DUI kind of thing. I know that's not your world, but, but you're right. I, it, it does sound to me intuitive that a very fair question to ask is where do most of your referrals come from? So Mike, you brought up, you brought up the bus side and this is something that's very, uh, uh, very passionate about this, and and I, I tend to drop a lot of lob a lot of uh, criticisms to my to my fellow attorneys at times, as I think as you think you know, um, you know if and this is not just buses, this is not just billboards, but this is any swag that you get if you if your lawyer if your potential lawyer lawyer takes you to lunch and gives you some swag and takes you to baseball games or, or whatever, you know, and you're not a real client who's delivering revenue to them now, recognize. Those billboards don't pay for themselves. That swag doesn't pay for themselves, right? So, so it's a you know, it's a loss leader for them where where they're going to get that money back somehow, whether they're going to beat it out of your hide or out of every client's a collective hide. But you know, from 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 my perspective, anytime I see a law firm that is spending huge mar- huge budgets on on marketing in a way that does not uh, result in substantive content for a client that lets them learn something so that they can 
to drive better decisions. That's, um, you know, that's like a television commercial watching a, 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 a primetime TV show. Is it, is it fair for a client to ask an, an attorney for specific references, somebody they could call and ask a client or previous client how happy they were for, with their work? Absolutely. Yes. And a couple of years ago, there's a very famous attorney, of course, I won't, I won't say their name, who um, wants a contact of mine, asked that, that attorney for um, referrals. They were in the startup world and wanted to see whether they were a good, a good uh, patent expert because they're at all the startup shows, right? They're, they're everywhere. So, you know, it's like you would think that this would be the person that you would hire to do your startup patent work for you, very, you know, very uh, senior person in town. And this, this uh, patent person told my contact that uh, it was would be impossible to give the names of other clients that they had worked for because that would be a violation of attorney-client privilege. And I had never heard anything like like that before. And I said, well, if if they don't want to uh, introduce you to their their existing clients and, and to satisfy clients, you by then can take a negative inference on that and assume that there are none. Oh, I, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to weigh in on that. So I agree with everything Jackie said out to the very last inference there being such a broad brush. Um, there are certain types of practice areas where the client that might be related to what you're doing, in fact, might be uh, needing some confidentiality because there's an active litigation matter or, and, and just the fact that they've hired this attorney, this fancy well-known attorney could be very bad for their business. And, but but uh, in, the, in the patent world, your name is, is public record on the patent. So, so that's uh yeah, so I, I, I just didn't want that to be painted across all law, you know, but not every single client, if they only have three clients or four in your industry and they're all new and they're all for whatever, and it's a litigation, you know, attorney and a litigator. And so you need a reference. Um, they should be able to give you some client reference or, you know, multiple, even if they can't give you one that might be directly related to your industry right now. And, and then you just also, it's information, you now know. Breaking into your industry is a as a newer uh, is a more recent uh, experience for that attorney because they just don't have any that aren't currently in active litigation right now, and that usually means it's only they've only had the, that kind of client for the last two and a half years max. So you know there are other attorneys that might have more experience in your industry. Maybe you should look around. We are talking with Jackie Hutter and Juliana Neal Bauer, and the topic is how do I choose a lawyer. Um, is, is there any kind of, you know, in the financial world, there's often public record when, when people sort of have marks against them, whether it's a, it's a, an official censure by an accrediting organization or a complaint filed with a regulatory agency. Is there anything similar that pertains to the legal profession where I could do my own background check and see if there've been any complaints filed say with the bar association or if there's been a censure or anything just to you know at least do that that basic level of due diligence yes in fact unlike other industries there's at least three places that you can search to see if your attorney has been subject to an unhappy client outcome Um, one of them is the 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 court system itself where they could file a malpractice claim against the attorney another one is a grievance proceeding with the bar association. And if you're not sure how to search for that, you can even call the bar association and they have clerks that will help you look that up. That's a second resource for that. 
And then if, and the bar one for the grievance is nice because even if it doesn't rise to a level where the client can afford to file a claim in court against their attorney, or it doesn't rise to a level where they can show damages easily, or they can file a claim in court, if they still have a legitimate ethical grievance with their attorney, they can file a grievance with the bar association. And then third is um, the Better Business Bureau. I mean, again, this is where I come back to, you know, we are vendors. We're partners in your business, but, you know, we are running our own operations here. And so you could certainly have uh, consumer consumers uh, file uh, uh, unhappinesses with the Better Business Bureau, too. Uh, practically speaking, others? Yeah, but well, practically speaking, however, and I have recent experience on this, we had a outside counsel for two, two of my clients. One was an entrepreneur, one's an entrepreneur, small business, and another one is a, a fairly large, um, you know, company, well-known company that, um, and outside counsel was doing work, work for us under my management. And it turns out, you know, who knows, maybe he has a health issue. Maybe he's got, maybe he has a drinking problem. Who knows? But we found out because for a lot of lawyers, especially when you have um, time dependent things like litigation or you have dates, um, they're, they're, uh, you expect your lawyer to report stuff to you and you, to give you the information and, and um, of, of course, respond, but also respond in a timely manner. And in this case, it, we, we found out just because, you know, no news was not good news in this case. Hmm. And what ended, up, what ended up happening is there was a, a clear pattern in retrospect that this lawyer was not um, maintaining ethical standards. Uh, yeah, it was likely malpractice, but for both of these clients, the, the decision was to just like, let's just find somebody else and move on and mitigate, you know, and, and uh, mitigate the damage here uh, because we found it because I was managing things. We found, we found it before there was real damage, but what the, uh, what the effect was at was just basically let this guy off because he did things. It didn't make sense for us to make a complaint, um, you know, because there really was no damage. Um, you know, because we, we were able to, to stop that damage, but this guy is just going to go ahead and continue to whatever have what other health problem he he has or or drinking problem or whatever whatever reason he's he's not he's not maintaining ethical standards. Um, and you know, his is he you know is it, is he the equivalent of letting somebody you know drive drive a car without the without uh, without his faculties maybe. But he's not going to hit my client. He's not going to hit me anymore. And it, it, it's an awful thing. You just, well, what do you do, right? You know, it's it's so relatively speaking, like just like with medical malpractice, relatively speaking, there's very few complaints made when there should okay. be. Although there are got kind of legal industry gossip sources too that you could go to. Um, some of them are not very journalistic at all, and and potentially are um, defamatory. Others are. Uh, maybe a little bit more um, balanced, like above the law, which by the way, if you search for Jackie on above the law, all you'll find is positive stuff about her. So wait, am I on above law? I didn't know I'm on above law. You are, you're an IP dealmaker listed on there in an article um, for winning an award as an IP dealmaker at the IP dealmakers forum. So um, that was a trivia contest. Yeah. But you're still, (laughs) you get a plug, you get a plug on there. So, um, so, you know, if you want to kind of like see what might not have been filed, but it's sort of like gossip, and it's usually about a firm, not necessarily a specific attorney, unless a specific attorney does something very untoward. Uh, but that is another source you could go to. And uh, Law 360 covers the industry, but is it more, I, I would say, always positive uh, generally and not necessarily so much gossip. But yeah, I mean, 
it's it's sort of like again dating and hiring anybody in your C-suite. It, it's not always easy to know, like, unless again you've had this referred to you by one or more people in the field or people in your industry. And this is where I go back to like watch this person in action as much as you can, hear them in action, read them in action as much as you can. Um, we're running over time here, but I, if you can bear with me, I have a couple more questions I'd love to get through because I think they're important. Um, and, and one of them is how, how would you advise somebody who's, who's retaining counsel, but there's a disconnect between either the reputation or just their general feeling between an attorney and the firm for whom they work, right? Could be a situation, maybe you like the attorney, but maybe you don't love the firm so much, or maybe it's the opposite, right? Maybe, maybe it's, um, you don't love the attorney, but the firm has a reputation of being the quote best firm in town. Capital letters TM. How, how do you do? You, is it do you try to reconcile those things? Do you run screaming if those two things are not aligned? You just sort of shuffle the deck and start over. How, do you prioritize one or the other? How, how do you how do you address that mentally? Again, this relationship is really between you and the attorney for the long term. In my experience the firm can make that relationship more or less fun um, based upon um, administratively, like how, how easy they make it to work with that attorney or difficult. Um, if that attorney is not empowered, unfortunately, by their colleagues that they might work for to work directly with you and their, their colleagues are going to insert themselves in your work and you don't like those colleagues, you as a client have a lot of power to request who you want to work with and make that demand and say, I only want to work with so-and-so or um, not that person. And um, I had a client whose business model was in ESG space, and she was a female founder who was helping to fund other female founders. So shout out to Enrich Her and Dr. Roshana Novelis for what she has done and her success. And um, and I've had clients in that space who come to me like her or others and have said, I really want all of the attorneys who work on my project to be um, uh, to meet diversity standards of the Mansfield requirements, which is a diversity standard, or to be represent my company. And so in some cases, I'll ask, I want only female attorneys, or I only want people who represent that on my case. And um, in some cases, you can have quite a bit of power to get that outcome if, if the firm is willing to accommodate that, and if it's a legal request for you to make. And then also, if you've been assigned an attorney, that is, you just don't feel is the the right fit for you. Um, and if you like the the, the managing managing attorney, um, I know I have no qualms with telling my um, um, my primary um, IP uh, outside LP counsel. It's like, no, I don't want that person working on my stuff. Or I just did not feel that they really you know were passionate about. It. They didn't get me that kind of stuff. And it, that that it, that's not happening anymore. And we need to find somebody else. And in fact, the bar rules uh, make it very difficult if not impossible for a firm to place a non-compete so that you could that attorney can't work with a specific client because it is so important in our just judicial system and our justice system for the client to have that choice of who is going to represent them. And so to Jackie's point, you have the right to ask for counsel that you request and, and need and want. And if you don't feel like you've got good representation, you have the right to request representation that you want. So ladies, we, we, I, I, we're, we're past 
sort of out of time, uh, but I, I know we didn't get to all the questions that, that I wanted to, and there are probably other questions that we covered, but maybe somebody, a listener would like to go into more depth or, Hey, maybe somebody who's listening to this wants to hire one or both of you guys. Um, can they contact you for more information? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Well, for me, um, I'm at Jackie Hutter Gmail. Um, and I also have a podcast, Winning with Patents and IP, that's now entering its second season. And I write a lot on LinkedIn. So look for me on LinkedIn. And um, if if I sound like somebody you think might be fun and uh, create value for you to work with, I'd love to hear from you. Similar to Jackie, I'm pretty prolific on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I have uh, getting off of most of the Facebook products in May. Uh, unwind down my Instagram presence soon, but um, but for the time being, I'm cemented there. So you certainly can reach out to me there. Uh, Neil Bauer J, that last name is so long. You certainly are welcome to look at the show notes to get that email address, but Neil Bauer J at deflaw, D-E-F-L-A-W.com is my email address. And I'm certainly always interested to talk to new potential clients, especially those that have heard me or seen me speak or write. And so, you know, seeing that work product, if this feels like a good communication style, I'm very interested in speaking with you. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Jackie Hutter and Juliana Neal Bauer so much for sharing their expertise with us. We will be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. Thank you.